left, right. Yo, what is up, friends of me? Thank you for joining this episode. This is a very cool episode. We have Natalie Byram on. She was the attack company commander in Afghanistan, uh, 2017 to 2018. Today we're talking about Afghanistan. There's a lot going down in Afghanistan now that we have removed the troops. Uh, we're getting into some of the details. Remember, this has been a war that's been uh, going on for over two decades. So there's a lot of stuff you might not know about, probably a lot of stuff you've forgotten about. So listen, let me know what you think. Let me know what your opinion on the entire matter is. I'm super curious. Don't forget to throw it in the comments, like the podcast. And if you have not already, subscribe. I would truly appreciate that. We all would. Uh, and thank you again to Natalie for joining. See you guys on the other side. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. <laughs> Cheers. 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 So let me uh, let me get rolling, guys. We'll do a, a quick intro in a minute. But this is Sip Talk, episode 127. My name is Justin Julio from my basement in New Jersey. I'm joined by James the Bosnier Boswell out of Charleston, South Carolina. James is a philosopher, an accountant, a professional referee, and a professional bartender. And I'm joined below by Natalie Byram. Natalie, your official title is... Uh, attack company commander and you were in afghanistan 2017 to 2018 is that correct i don't know if you can hear me i can hear you yeah, yeah we, got a we got a little we got a little lag time here we do yes yes i was a company commander in afghanistan in 2017 now i'm a medical device sales rep <laughs> now you're in medical sales. Very, very interesting. Okay. Uh, so we, uh, James and I just want to address the, the last podcast because we kind of went out in flames in the last episode after a couple of drinks. We had a bit of a political argument. We're going to try to avoid some politics tonight. We want to be talking about specifically Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to try not to interrupt each other, uh, try not to talk over each other, try to listen and hear each other out. And uh, we're going to establish some more clear rules when it comes to debate moving forward. But on that note, uh, thank you guys for joining. Uh, today, we'll be talking strictly about Afghanistan. Natalie, uh, we'd love your point of view on this. First off, uh, I got to share with you guys. I just uh, I came home and I, I had way too much uh, pre-workout mix and I did a quick workout. I'm like literally shaking right here. So. Um, I'm going to need your guys' help to carry me a little bit. I'm going to pour myself a drink, which might bring me down just a hair. Um, what do you guys have to well, drink? While you're doing that, I, uh, I'm doing the Bush Ice and Johnny Walker black routine. Okay. Natalie, did you bring a beverage? I did. I have to admit, it's, it's more Coke than it is Jack. More like Coke with a tiny splash, but there's some in there. All right, good, good. I, you know, I, I, uh, All right. I figured, Natalie, since we had you here, we, I try to, you know, be very American here. I got my uh, American USA Olympic uh, sweatshirt on, and I'm making a drink that that I thought felt I very love- American, which was uh, cherry vodka, 
and Diet Coke. So I'm going to pour one of those. Oh, you're just bringing things back 12 years. <laughs> so um, let's get started, uh, Natalie. We, we met, uh, what, like 11, 12 years ago? Yeah, 2009. And we worked in the mall together. We did. Yeah, you actually recruited me to Hollister. I don't know if you remember that. But I was shopping there on Black Friday, and you were like, you should apply. Like, okay. So I immediately applied that day. Oh, you applied that day. That was a that was a fun job. I thought, uh, you know, it was a it was a pretty cool work environment. Um, but I think that I think the brand has changed a little bit, unfortunately, over the last decade, maybe, maybe, unfortunately, I don't know, it, it you know, it, it depends on the perspective there. Um, but all of us lived yeah. in, all of us lived in Charleston. And Natalie, where are you now? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. You're in Atlanta. Okay. So uh, I, I want to get a better idea of, of an understanding of what's happened in Afghanistan. Obviously, we spent the last 20 plus years there. Um, and uh, either one of you guys want to jump in and kind of summarize what's happening. Well, I wanted to start. I wanted to start by asking Natalie this question, because she's going to have the, be the best perspective, which is when when Biden announced his plans to withdraw from Afghanistan a couple months ago, and then everything that's happened since, especially in the last week, I just want to know what your thoughts were like when it ha when 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 we announced that we were leaving, and then what's happened since. Like, what's your overall impression? Mm. How do you feel about it since you were there? That's a really loaded question. So I, I'll take I felt it was pretty open. No, 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 it is. It is. It's just there's a lot of layers to it. I personally support a withdrawal. Having been in Afghanistan and seeing the environment myself, I saw that the war we were there for was a generational war. That meant we needed to be there for multiple generations in order to accomplish westernizing the country because that really seemed like it was a goal from my perspective i know that isn't necessarily what the country's goal was but we were building up a democracy there we were building up their own law enforcement structure their own military structure very westernized aspects because previously and, and even still today they're a tribal country so I understood that to stay there was to be there for multiple generations. And I didn't necessarily think that was what we needed to do. So in terms of leaving Afghanistan, I was fully supportive, whether President Trump announced it or President Biden, I was fully supportive of US forces withdrawing. I assumed that that withdrawal meant that we would withdraw personnel and equipment and that we would eliminate our footprint that was there. Have That's we, not what happened. Okay. We left millions, what, billions in equipment behind. That's weapons, equipment that the Taliban can use against its own population. So going from the announcement of we're going to withdraw, I'm happy about that, to, oh my gosh, look at what we left behind that can be used against the population. That's pretty devastating. Can I ask this question? Because I have a conception here, but you can probably correct it. Because I thought that, like, 
when if we go to war somewhere, we're obviously going to fly in and ship in all the supplies that we need there. But then, like, once the war is over, I thought that it was actually generally policy that we just kind of left that stuff behind. I thought that was kind of normal practice. There's always something that's left behind, right? And I, I'm really not 100% sure what is standard practice. I know in terms of buildings, if we've built any infrastructure, we might leave those behind, but... Pretty hard to take it with you. Yeah, I mean, like, secret level equipment, drones, up-armored Humvees. If we leave something behind, generally speaking, we destroy it. Like, especially an aircraft. If, if an aircraft were to crash in a country for any reason, we don't just leave it in its crash form there. We make sure it's fully destroyed, or we try to remove it to another location like there's secret equipment generally speaking like like it might be a chip in a drone or a chip somewhere in a computer that you really need to zeroize i don't know what level was left behind there but i mean these are items that you don't want in the hands of any sort of like oppressive authority so so i got a a question for you and really what prompted me to, you know, yesterday I was, I was looking for, uh, you know, a couple of people to join and I really wanted to be talking about Afghanistan this week. And I saw your post, um, which was multi-pages. There's multiple pages. There was, uh, you were, you pay, I think you did a very good job in painting a picture that somebody who wasn't very familiar with the situation could understand. Can you, could you share a little bit about what you posted? Um, and you know, if you want to read it, you know, or, or whatever you got, uh, off the top of your head and then a little bit about what it was like for you when you were there, because a lot of people, this is a, you know, two plus a decade war, which is an insane amount of time to be at war. And, you know, your thoughts on winning this war was it, it needed to be literally at least double the length if it was something that we were going to continue it and and strive to win so i'm i'm curious what it was like being over there and if you could share a little bit about what you had posted yesterday because i think that's really important yeah so what led me to post and, and i'll explain to you guys what i said in just a moment was seeing messages of people validating why the taliban taking over afghanistan is okay because they're a new taliban they're a nice kind taliban and they're not what they once were. Well, I was in Afghanistan in 2017 and 2018. And what I saw was extremely disturbing. Like they commit a lot of atrocities against the local population. In my specific area, I was in the Helmand province, which is more the Southwest area. Um, there's a lot of Taliban presence there. So I saw what they did on a day-to-day -day basis. They like to enforce curfew on the population well, how do they enforce curfew? Because they could patrol the streets like we do if we enforce curfew in the US, but they don't. They implant IEDs in the road, improvised explosive devices. So if you violate your curfew and you're driving, you would literally detonate a bomb in the road. Like somebody would come in the evening and place the IED. And then in the morning, they would come around sunrise and deactivate them. Inevitably, there would always be an ID left still activated, like somebody forgot to deactivate it, or maybe they just meant to leave it there. I'm not sure the reasoning. And I'd fly aerial security or conduct reconnaissance out there, and it'd be a child 
running in the road that detonated an IED that they didn't know was there. Or if you aren't local to the area and you happen to be driving your car through there, like how much fear would you live in? Not knowing that wherever you step, there might be an ID. I mean, like think of the rice paddy fields in Vietnam, all the areas that are farmed, there are still farmers that are afraid that they might detonate a landmine out there. So it's, I, mean, I personally would live in complete fear of driving if that were me. But you were, you must've been and on then, the roads at you know, some, at some point, right? No. So I flew helicopters. So I fly the attack platform, the um, so my primary mission while I was out there, like we are the gunships, but my primary mission was reconnaissance. So getting everything from an aerial perspective. And that's what I saw from the air. That's wild. Like same, same method control for people, right? How do you keep people in fear? Well, you inspect them constantly. So what would the Taliban do? They would set up checkpoints randomly along the road. You'd never know when they'd be set up. There was no set location or set time that they would happen. And similar to they would set up multiple people at a time. Similar to how we have like sobriety uh, checks or checkpoints. Yeah. Okay. Probably a little less friendly. Yes. <laughs> imagine how much people did test the sobriety checkpoint in the U.S. And then imagine that you might die because a, a police officer, but in this case, a Taliban member would shoot you in the face. So what they would do is they'd set up these checkpoints and they'd be inspecting for something, whatever it was that they were looking for. One day it happened to be that they were inspecting SIM cards in cell phones because most of the cell phone providers in Afghanistan would turn over information to the Taliban so that they could see who was working with NATO forces. You were calling them, texting them, like it helped give them the information of who were traitors to their cause. So if you happen to be that person with a SIM card from a non-Taliban approved provider, I watched as they shot you point blank in the face with your family in the car. No regard for your human life whatsoever. I mean, I don't know about you, but that puts a new perspective on checkpoints in the US. I, I'm happy to go through a sobriety checkpoint at any point in time now. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's what I read in, on your on your post the other day. And I was like, this is this is absolutely wild. It's difficult to fathom a life in a place like this. And now all these people are trying to escape. Um, you know, and, and we can get into it in a, in, a, in a little bit, but I'm curious the future of this country and, and you know, where it goes. And, I, you know, I didn't know too, too much about the Taliban before uh, doing a little research today. Um, it's, you know, it's not really been my war. It's, you know, I'm not in the military. Uh, you know, I li live a, a, a pretty simple middle class life. You guys do your thing. You know, I'm very thankful for that. But it's not it's not something we pay much attention to. And it's not 2001. It's not 2002. This isn't for the most part, you know, we're not seeing images of the war uh, on the TV. We're not hearing about it that often on the radio. And it's really something that nobody thinks about anymore. Uh, you know, and we announced that troops were leaving and everybody's like, oh, finally, thank God, you know, not thinking anything, anything about it. And then as we find out it's happening, we're it's now headline news again. And we're seeing the Taliban 
take back control and we're learning more about the Taliban. Um, but, you know, in my mind, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden, you know, this is all, you know, it's, it's just kind of all compartmentalized in, in one part of my, my mind that I don't think about very often. So, you know, now I'm, you're, you, the big thing was everybody saw this video last week um, of all these uh, Afghan citizens trying to jump on the outside of a plane that was taking off on the runway. And that's, you know, and I think two or three people fell to their death off of this plane after it took off, correct? So that's the level of dedication. People are willing to sacrifice the, their lives or risk, you know, risk their lives and some lost their lives just to try to escape the place. So, you know, a couple of questions I had is what's it like trying to leave Af Afghanistan? And, and, you know, I want to talk about, uh, is it Sharia law and, and kind of what the, what the Taliban enforces and, and what, what's happening over there day to day? Because obviously they're still doing these checkpoints what are the other things they're looking at for? It sounds like they're trying to also, you know, I'm wondering if these guys are a bunch of idealists and they're super religious and that, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to impose their religion and this is their strict re religious belief, or if they're a bunch of drug dealers that are getting everybody on their side, professing this religion and allowing them to perpetuate dealing drugs and making money and whatever else. That's a lot of, a lot of topics in Afghanistan right there. <laughs> well, so I, we could talk a little bit about Sharia law. We could talk a little bit about drugs um, and a little bit about trying to get out of the country. So if you want to break that down into, I know we're putting the pressure on you, but you've been over there. And <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Okay. First, I think let's address people falling to their death because that's, that's why I felt the urgency to post about this on Instagram. What is going on in Afghanistan right now is urgent and time sensitive because the second that the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan, those people, the reason they're clamoring onto the planes knowing that they can't hang on until that plane lands wherever it's meant to land, they would rather die trying to escape the country than take the chance to see what happens under Taliban control because it's extremely oppressive it is dangerous i mean the taliban openly walk around with ak's and rpgs throughout the day i mean imagine that sight in the u.s like we we get worried with people with concealed carries well imagine if somebody was carrying an rpg in front of your face so i yeah, think I, it's really <laughs> i always thought an rpg would be pretty easy to avoid you know if it... <laughs> Is no, that the, is that the case? But I think people would cut. I think there would be less people cutting each other off in traffic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you'd be less likely to mess with somebody that had an RPG hanging out of their window. That's for sure. Yeah, but you're also you know living in 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 fear, and not just fear, but almost dread on a day to day basis is it's a lot of stress. Yes. So. Definitely. So do you know much about Sharia law? What I know about Sharia law is that it can be brutal in its enforcement. Um, the way that I've been taught to think about it is 
you know, if you commit a crime, they'll cut your hand off. If you, I, I don't know, it, it's just very brutal. I almost think of it as like eye for an eye, but Sharia law is not something that I really had to focus on or learn while I was in Afghanistan. It's been a while since I've really revisited it. Okay, well, let me ask you this question, because you touched on this earlier about the intent of trying to introduce Western values and democracy to Afghanistan and how you feel like, even though 20 years is a long time, that wasn't enough. Am I stating your opinion correctly? Yes. So I've read a bunch of articles about this that basically talked about how the way that people in Afghanistan have lived for pretty much ever is just not conducive to the goals that we espoused of that you that you have people that have never been educated because the government doesn't provide education to a large majority of the people. So you have people that only know subsistence farming and they only know like corruption where if they need to get something they know who to bribe or who to contact and just how to operate through levels of grift and these ideals of education and democracy are just so completely foreign to them that adopting them isn't really realistic so some opinions i've seen out there is that like we weren't going to be able to accomplish what we set to accomplish in Afghanistan, no matter how hard we tried. And I wanted to know, since you were there and you actually met the people and, and saw it firsthand, is that accurate? What's your opinion about whether or not our, like, our stated goal was even realistically achievable? I, I don't think our goal was achievable, not, not in any reasonable time frame. So I, I'm cautious to throw a blanket over categorizing the entire country because there are cities that are more developed in Afghanistan. Um, if we're going to talk as a whole, like Afghanistan has a lot of rural land. Like, like you said, there's a lot of farming out there. In fact, it's primarily poppy fields in Afghanistan. So uh, is they're easy to grow and they're profitable. Yes, it, yes. Worth hitting on that the illicit drug trade in the U.S., 70% of that world of the opium comes from Afghanistan. So that's where a significant chunk of the Taliban's finances come from as well, from poppy. Um, Poppy, by, by the way, poppy, by the way, is the plant that's used to produce opioids and cocaine. Um, no, and no, not cocaine. What are not, you talking about? Okay, what, what are you, just opioids? Opium. It's opium, opium, and then you can you can refine opium into heroin. Okay. so You can't but, get, like, hydrocodone or those from, from, from opium plant, from, okay. from poppy plant. Poppy plant leads to opium. Opium lead, you can get opium into morphine, and you get morphine into heroin. That's the trajectory okay but but basically they have these poppy fields and they're using them to produce and then distribute drugs throughout the world and you said 70 percent of this 70 percent of the drugs in the u.s come from afghanistan 70 percent of the opium 
in the world. In the world. Okay. Uh, and for anybody who's just joining us, we're joined by Natalie Byram, who, let me make sure I'm hitting your, your title correctly, uh, was attack company commander in Afghanistan from 2017 to 2018. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, guys, but... <laughs> Uh, but we were, we were talking about poppies, and I just wanted to clarify that poppies means effectively drugs. So, yes, there are farmers, but as a whole, most of Afghanistan does still function in like that tribal mentality. Everything is in your village with your tribe. So I think it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to bring, you know, the Western democracy values there because they liked their village mentality like they are very close with their family everyone's right there in the village i mean if it comes to background checks in afghanistan the way that they have background checks is to call the village elder and ask the elder to vouch for you so i i certainly don't think that we would have made a lot of headway very quickly with that still being the primary in afghanistan Another another thing I, I read from someone who claimed to have been in Afghanistan was that there was a not insignificant portion of the population that didn't even know that the Americans were different from the Russians from 1989, that they basically reacted to the Americans the exact same way they would have to the Russians. Potentially. And what, so two questions. Uh, what were we doing there in the first place and what were the Russians doing there in the late eighties? James, I'll, I'll let you hit the Russians first. Natalie, I'll let you answer why we were there because not, remember not, you know, this is a 20 year long war. Somebody who's 25 years old right now may not, you know, may not have any idea um, what we were doing there. And again, it hasn't been headline news for years and years and years. So James, what, first off, what was going on with Russia in the eighties? Well, in the mid to late 80s, it was kind of during the, the last throes of communist Russia, where they were seeing their quote unquote empire crumble. And so they, they tried to conquer new lands to be able to bring communism to new people, because it wasn't working in a lot of their old and like a lot of their satellite countries. And so they saw Afghanistan as a land that offered the promise of a new population susceptible to communism. And so in much the same way that we went into Afghanistan to topple a regime and install our version of the right government for, for the people, well, the Russians tried that, but 15, 20 years before we did, where their version was communism, ours was democracy. But the idea was the same is we're going to go in there, we're going to topple the old government, and we're going to teach the people of this country why our version of government is superior, and they'll see it's superior and they'll get on board. And the Russian occupation of Afghanistan, well, shorter than ours, ended in similar fashion. Okay. And then Natalie, with the US, when did we, when did we go into Afghanistan to start? 2001? Oh. Yeah, I want to say it was late 2001 was when we first got there. Um, yeah, it was we we first started bombing them in like October of 2001. And why was this? Because we were looking for Osama bin Laden? Al-Qaeda. So really? our goal was Al-Qaeda and 
basically the Taliban, we wanted to destroy what we thought was the stronghold of it. And then in that process, establish a democracy in Afghanistan, and then, you know, like win hearts and minds and bring those Western values for women and children and help Afghanistan become more of an independent state instead of being like a hotbed for insurgency. Well, because the, the government of Afghanistan in 2001 was run by the, the Taliban, but it was also very fractious. And so the Taliban looked the other way on terrorist organizations operating and recruiting out of their country. And so we looked at the Taliban and said, you guys have allowed all of this to go on. And because of that, this happened to us. So you're out. And then after we knocked the Taliban down, well, we said, well, we can't just like knock out a government and leave nothing behind. So then we decided to establish a government. So what's what's the difference between the Taliban, the Taliban, Al Qaeda, jihadists? Can you guys shed some light on this? <laughs> That's a really great question. Well, there's <laughs> considerable overlap. I mean, to me, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I imagine it's something along the lines of like Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist. No, it's well, no. I, okay. One thing I will say is like Al Qaeda and um, the Taliban are very similar, but ISIS is not. In in which way? Like. ISIS was basically rejected by Al Qaeda and the Taliban because they are an extreme. They're, they're even more brutal. You've seen it. You've seen probably somehow they were too extreme. Yes, they were rejected by the group for being so extreme and turning on Muslims and killing Muslims as well. Well, I, I feel like that there's some contradictions there because the Taliban also killed Muslims. And so it really was we're the each group would justify their actions by saying well the people we killed weren't true muslims because they committed some haram and where your definition is that's a sliding scale that both of them like one would just say our definition is here and your definition is over there but they would probably justify their terrible actions using the exact same justification Okay, so they're almost like different, uh, further in the spectrum, you're saying. So let me, let me put it this way. I, let me try and draw this distinction, because you said we've got Taliban, we've got Al-Qaeda, and we've got jihadists. So Taliban is a, basically a governmental group or a group seeking governmental legitimacy to establish a Muslim nation that follows Sharia law. Um, but in terms of fighting against outside forces, I don't think that the Taliban was really interested in doing that insofar as it, with the exception of protecting their own self-perceived borders. So the they, Taliban want rule, weren't looking, they want to rule they, the land, you're saying? They want to rule their land, but they didn't have much interest in conquest. It's we want Afghanistan, but we're not interested in other countries. Okay. We just want our people under our rule. 
Whether or not you agree with that, I don't really care. I'm just stating my opinion on what the facts of the matter are as they appear to me. So, you, okay. So, anyways, so that's the Taliban. Al Qaeda is a terrorist wing that seeks to take its agenda and inflict damage on other countries that they feel are not abiding by their version of the proper way to live. And so they really targeted the United States because they felt that the United States was meddling in the Middle East and trying to put its version of proper life on people that didn't want it. And so the Al-Qaeda response was, okay, if you attack us, we will attack you back. So that's where they differ from the Taliban, is that the Taliban didn't really attack us. They just wanted to have their own country and rule the way they wanted to rule. And Whereas yeah. Al-Qaeda would actually strike out and hit Western nations because they felt that Western nations weren't respecting proper Muslim law. Jihadists is a much more blanket term for, well, it, and it, it's very broad, but jihadists would be basically anybody that are trying to fight against Western countries suppressing Islam. Just so you know, the word jihad means struggle. Yeah, but the, the term that jihadist is, I think, separate from like the actual textbook definition of jihad. Sure, but yeah, but they're the ones that are like pushing pushing against it and it, would that would they be considered terrorists jihadists some of them maybe probably okay but like the thing is like in terms of the meaning of the word jihad that's one of those ones where in muslim in islamic scholarship there's considerable debate as to what the meaning of that word means so more progressive islamic scholars mean that jihad is just either an internal struggle of trying to live according to God's rules or a more external struggle where you're just trying to be a good ambassador for the Muslim faith. And then more extremist Muslim scholars would say that jihad means that we need to bring this religion to other people. And then That's how much force you use to bring it to other people is another set of debates. Okay. So it's it's a wide so the word itself can is is really up to interpretation, and it's been used primarily for the most extreme members. So, maybe, so maybe we use it that way, but I do want to clarify that the word jihad itself I don't want people to associate with terrorism. Like jihad is a word in Islam that that does not mean someone's going to walk up behind you and, and inflict pain on you in any sort of way. I think that's, I think that's really important to, to explain as well. Adding, adding the suffix ist on it, it changes the meaning a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, but Natalie, based on your experiences, am I summarizing things most, mostly correct? I'm not going to say yes, and I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say that I have heard many different explanations in many different ways, and it, it totally depends on where it comes from. Am I getting a scholarly definition? Am I getting 
um, like, like a religious scholar definition? Am I getting a political scientist definition? Is it someone of Afghan, like Afghan origin who's explaining it to me? Is it an American? So I, I think there's a lot of different perspectives on how these organizations are explained and viewed. Uh, I think, I think adding, adding the, the perspective on things, you know, is really kind of, yeah, I think, you know, whoever's perspective on it is, is, you know, depends on who you're talking to um, and depends on who's talking. But I want to, so basically to summarize what my new understanding of what's happened over there is we went in fighting back against terrorists in the early 2000s. And we kind of took over their government and decided we were going to set up a, a new government, try to create a stable government similar to ours, which is what we know. We certainly weren't going to go over there and say, why don't you guys try communism? Okay, <laughs> Because it just it doesn't work. So we said, well, this works for us. It can, it can work for you. So we spent the last two decades there fighting back against the Taliban who wanted to rule the area not necessarily them being terrorists, but them being, you know, they wanted to rule their country. And we set up a government, a relatively fickle government, as it, you know, it come to find out. And once we left and we weren't there to defend the government that we had set up, that government didn't seem so much interested in defending itself because it was basically, they'd be, it would be a civil war and a lot more of them would die than if they just said, you know, hey, you got me. Uh, all right, cool. We'll do, you know, we'll do it. That's fine. We, you know, you got me. And uh, is that pretty much what's happened? We set up a government that we left. The Taliban said, yeah, we're not. That's they're gone. All right. We're going to we're going to do our own thing now. And uh, and then the people that were in the roles in the government basically ran away and said this isn't worth losing all of our lives for um and we may not even be able to fight back yeah i mean that that looks like that's what's happening right like based on what you see in images and videos based on probably a lot of the articles that you're reading what you're missing out of that context because we're looking at it as oh the afghans didn't even want to fight for their own country why do we care if they don't want to fight after everything that we've put in. Um, let's go back to how were they recruiting people into their police, into their military, even into their government? How was who? How was like Afghanistan recruiting people into- Once, once, we, once we set up the government there, you're saying? I'm saying once we were established there, we mm -hmm. started helping them set up their military, set up their governmental structure, set up okay. even their police force. How were all these people vetted? Okay. Again, I, I go what back. I, what well, I, I, I want to know the answer to this question because you ask a great question. Yeah, again, it's a tribal country. How do you vet people that don't have an established social security system where you can just drop them into a computer and see what they've been doing for the last 10 years? You, you can't do that. You call their village elder and you ask the village elder if they can vouch for them. If that elder is bought out or afraid of the Taliban in any way, do you think that they're not going to vouch for a new person who's in the Taliban to join that force? Like, did, do you really think that we, we weren't infiltrated from the very beginning by the Taliban? 
I think. So, have you, and, and I really have not, but have you watched the Homeland series? I have not. <laughs> I think I've seen well, like two episodes, but there's a lot of like kind of covert ops going on and traitors and, you know, P, well, you know double hold A's. Hold on, because she, she touched on something that I think is really important. And this is a blind spot in the American's perspective. And I want I want Natalie to tell me whether I'm right or wrong on this one, too. But like corruption in the United States is actually relatively low compared to a lot of other countries. In like, and, huh? I said, in my opinion, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I think, um, I and think so agreeance there. And so what she's describing is that like we might understand that Afghanistan is corrupt to a degree. But for for her to point out that, like, if you've got to recruit for the for the Afghan army or Afghan national police, well, how do you vet them? She just explained. And if the person that they were relying on to vet has been corrupted because of threats of violence or of money, well, that's just something that we don't expect to happen because that's like corruption level two or level three. And we're looking for corruption level one. And we can like it's just because we don't experience that level of corruption in this country, it's hard for us to know how to look for it in others. I agree with that. So, so go ahead. No, go go ahead. Well, you know, I and I don't I think a lot what you just said is a lot of people are like, oh well, they didn't even want to fight for their own country. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I'm sure there were you know some people that were very passionate about what was going on. But when it comes to having your whole family killed, if you, if you hold your ground, that's probably not something you're going to want to want, you know, want to hold your ground with. And you're just gonna say, all right, you know, we'll just do it your way. Um, because you don't stand a chance. And not only do you not stand a chance to get your way, it's not like they're just gonna say, okay, you go home and you can't have this job in government anymore. They're just they're going to shoot you in the face and go to your house and kill all of your family. That's pretty accurate, yeah. correct? I, yeah, it is. I would have an extremely difficult time standing up to somebody knowing that they would murder my entire family, especially murder them in front of me or murder me in front of my family. I would hate that for them. But I mean, they're infiltrated from the inside. The Taliban knows exactly who all these people are that joined the ANSAF or the ANP or work in government closely with Americans. So you're not really safe in any form. Your identity isn't law, uh, isn't protected in here. So as soon as the U.S. pulled out, what did we expect to happen? Like these people then turned in towards the people that they had been, you know, covertly working aside for the Taliban, like, so it's so, just a level of I could never imagine having to be going through. Yeah, and I think a lot of people here could couldn't fathom at all what what it's like living in a country like this. Um, so Rosh is bringing up a good point. I was you have some of my notes here. I'm curious what your time was like when you were over there. What did you spend your days doing? What was the environment like? Were you in the villages? Were you on a base? Could you paint a better picture of what it was like to be over there? Yeah, so when I was in Afghanistan, I was on a base um, really out in the middle of the desert. The nearest city was, uh, it was about two miles away, but out in the desert, it's kind of hard to see anything from where you are, it's just expansive sand. Um, 
but I didn't get to interact with the locals at all, but I did get to interact with any of the ANSAF forces, which are the um, military forces for the Afghanistan government. And if they would stop through my base, I would get to see them. Or on a few incidences, I was able to go to what we call an expeditionary operation. So I was able to go to another base in order to try and help secure the city. And I would get to see the local forces there and speak to them about their experiences. And um, it's really eye-opening for somebody to walk up to you and tell you that they really appreciate you being there and working alongside them. And that the reason that they joined the military was because the Taliban had murdered their entire family and they want to bring justice to their family and bring peace to their country so that people don't have to suffer like that anymore. That's the kind of stuff that haunts you because you just, you don't imagine that happening in America. But yeah. in terms of like villagers, I did not really interact with villagers. And what, what's, what's it like on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, it's Monday morning, eight o'clock in the morning. I don't know when you guys wake up, probably earlier than that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. What do you, what do you, do you have, you have duties that you have to do over there or you just kind of hang out and, and hang out in the, in the dust? <laughs> you certainly spent a lot of time hanging out in the dust, no matter what it was you were doing. Um, so I was a company commander when I was over there, which meant I managed about 50 soldiers. So whatever time I would wake up, it would depend on if I was on day shift, mid shift or night shift, I'd wake up and then I would go and get an intelligence briefing for the day. So whatever intel we had that was relevant to any missions we were. My specific mission as a pilot was quick reaction force. So if anything occurred in my area, then the Marines would call and they'd ask us to launch and I needed to be able to launch within 15 minutes. Like that was our goal, 15 minute launch. So, um, I'd wake up, get my intel brief, go pre-flight my helicopter, make sure it's all set for the day. And then as long as it's all set, go back inside and then do whatever admin I had to do in terms of managing 50 soldiers. And then if the Marines called and were like, it's time to go, then I would get in the helicopter. They'd send me a grid, tell me where to go. We'd go there and then we'd get eyes on the area and just develop whatever situation it was. If, um, they just needed us to take a look at a certain area. Hey, there's a checkpoint that just went up. Why don't you go check it out? Um, or, hey, uh, the ANSAF forces are getting attacked right now. We have no idea where it's coming from. Will you please go provide overhead security and develop the situation? We'd go provide overhead. It's kind of funny how once Apaches are in the area, no one seems to be shooting at anyone anymore. So... Uh, sometimes our presence just kind of kept the guys on the ground safe. So they preferred to only go out there with us, but obviously we couldn't be in the air all the time. Whether How long, how long can you be in the air? I don't know what, what a, I know a gas tank and a boat is considerably more expensive to fill than a gas tank and a car. Uh, yeah. you know, how long can you be in the air and, and what's a, what's a fuel tank look like? Um, we typically about three hours, uh, we can go a little bit more than that, but typically we were in the air for about three hours, but we overlapped. So if ever there was, a, um, a handoff that needed to happen, another team would just come right on so that there was never a gap in station time. So if they needed support from the air, they'd had it. So I'm in, I'm, I'm in Jersey now, you know, I was in South Carolina for a little while, but I grew up in New York. In New York, you fill up your own gas moving to Jersey. It's illegal to pump your own gas. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really weird. You just got to pull up, you hand the guy the cash or the card. You're not supposed to get out of the car. I don't know exactly the, the, the laws on it, but I just know you're not supposed to get out. Did you, uh, do you have to fill up the helicopters? Did you have to pump your own gas? I did not. No, we have fuelers in the military that fuel our aircraft. Okay. And is it diesel or uh, is it 93 octane? What's, what's, uh, you familiar with that or that just? It's JP8. It's what? It's, it's JP8. JP8. Okay. And you, we can't get well, we that. Have a joke, we have a joke that we use farm grade diesel. I just got back from a training exercise where we were accidentally given some pretty crappy diesel fuel in our aircraft, but we fixed So it. you're, you're still in like reserves? Uh, I in the National Guard, but I'm at the end of that time now. Um, let me ask you this question. Uh, from the people that you met in the Afghan army, and given where things are right now in the country, what what's their situation? What's the situ what's what's the future for the people that were actually in the Afghan army? What happens to them? Honestly, I don't know. And that's why I felt so passionate about posting on Instagram. Um, there are a lot of people who functioned as our interpreters and worked very closely with the United States in the entirety of the time that we were there. I mean, when, you, when I started doing some research and going down some rabbit holes, I found out that there were people that had visas that were waiting for approval for over a decade mm -hmm. to come here people who fought alongside us from the very beginning. And that just killed me. And then to think about a lot of the men and women who worked very closely, who kept my friends safe in recent years, they're dead now. Like as soon as we pulled out of certain areas of Afghanistan, the Taliban went to their home and killed them and their families immediately. Some of them, their families were spared, but they're dead. And I don't know the answer for those that are still alive. That's why this is time sensitive. That's why Americans need to call their representatives, their, their congressmen and their congresswomen, email the president, email the vice president and say that you're pissed and you need action now. So I'm largely in agreement with you here, but I want you to be a little more specific about what you think we owe these people. I think that the people that supported us, that we looked in the eyes and said, you support us, and we will protect you need to be protected. And in, in what way? What, what, what can yeah. we, and I imagine that basically if anybody helped out the US, any translators, anybody who were formerly in government or were in the military, basically all have, and they're not in the military, they're not protected by US soldiers. They all have targets on their back and on their forehead right now. So what, what, what do we do to protect them? Yeah, so great. Not everybody that joined the military in Afghanistan was looked at by us and told like, hey, we're going to protect you. The whole point of the military was for, to teach them the skills to be self-sufficient and or our interaction with them was to train them, to give them what they needed to be able to support their own country. But there are people in there, and I couldn't tell you all of them, but for certain, the interpreters that worked with us, for certain the ones that we train directly in order to have them train their own forces, we said, we will protect you. You have my back. I will have yours. Like those are- So the for those people, they, they should be given visas to the United States? 
Yeah, I believe that if we looked somebody in the eye and said, if you do this with us, we will protect you, they need to be protected. I think it's complete BS if we let them die. Well, you, you know, they- look, no, no, look, I agree with you. I'm just looking to, I want to make sure that like the things that you're saying or we're saying are clear to the people that are listening to us. Yeah. So, you know, we also have a lot of allies around the area and you know they could be doing things too or you know opening their borders or helping provide passage outside of the country um yeah i imagine it's got to be very difficult to escape the country um with the ieds and you know with these people that are basically you know living in the hills and uh, with what money well that's that's my point is that we you know we need to get it sounds like we might need to put some more troops in there to try to establish some type of protection and extraction or something. That's not going to happen. But, it, but something, you know, we either take no action or, you know, what are, what are the possible things that we can do? You know, we left, we're, we, we're out of there. So it's not like yeah, we can so- talk, you know, that we don't have a government, a democratic government that has money, you know, or the ability to really do anything over there. This is where I think it really shifts from the military perspective into a global humanitarian lens. Yeah, the US needs to break down some bureaucratic walls in order to get these people their visas that have been waiting a decade or however recently those were sent out. Like we need to clear the pathway for them to have access here. But I think this is where the world really can step in. And I'm amazed at what I've been seeing online with personal fundraisers from people um like i think there's one like quarantino or something like that i don't remember his name on there but he's raised over four million dollars for planes to pull people out of afghanistan like i think what the world should do is get them out and then figure out the visa situation later but i think it's easily something that a crowd can help fundraise given that we know where to direct our own money to and again, well, I'm looking at it from that humanitarian perspective now instead of a governmental perspective. Yeah, but it so- it sounds like it sounds like something needs to be done. And the US is a pretty big country and probably a pretty you know, if you were pointing fingers at countries that should do things, it would probably be the country that was just present in Afghanistan for the last two decades, uh, to m- maybe be one of the first people you point at to do something. But we just left and now things are bad. So something needs to be done. Uh, you know, and well, so I want to, I want to reinforce one point that, that Natalie made that I think is really important has kind of been missed, which is we told these people that they were on our side and we were going to protect them. And if we don't do that, if we don't take care of these people and give them visas to the United States or find some way to give them safe Harbor, outside of Afghanistan where they're clearly not safe, if we don't do that, then the next time that our country is inevitably in a similar mess, what in the world would compel somebody in whatever country we're in to take risks to try and help us and take our word when we say that we have their backs? because they can point to Afghanistan and say, look at all those people that you that helped you 
that you said you were going to protect and then look at all the holes in the ground where they used to live. Yeah, I think uh, why would I help you? I think you make a really good point. Yeah, we lose we lose the trust there. Um, but look, guys, we're at the end of the podcast. We're hitting the hour mark and uh, we've been getting kicked off at the hour mark. So on that note, Natalie, thank you very much. It was nice catching up with you. And I really appreciate your perspective. Um, and, you know, thank you for taking the time and coming on. And uh, James, thank you for your good insight and questions. Um, and that's it. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you again, Natalie. Thank you, James. I will see you guys. Natalie, thank you for everything you had to say. It really brought a different angle to this. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for asking questions that I'm going to think about for a while. All right, cool, guys. Until next time. Adios. that concludes this episode what did you think some of the facts we uh you know we were trying to get them right but uh, if we missed anything or uh, if you wanted to share your opinion please let us know and you made it this far into the podcast so if you have not already subscribed please do so make sure you like the podcast rate it five stars um and if you're not happy with it uh, let me know what you'd like to see change i'd love to uh keep growing the podcast and making it a better experience all the way around uh thank you again and i will see you guys next time I like PBR, I just got priced out of it.